Hey guys, this is the Hard Time Shogman Podcast, training up a bear class of man. And today we have a special guest for our medical crash course, Lance from Sealess Dynamics. Lance, how are you doing, brother? Man, I, I am I'm good. I couldn't get any better. Uh, my grandpa used to have a say, and he said, you know, if uh, I've been doing better, but I'm about to get over it. So I feel like that's where I am right now. So. <laughs> I don't remember who, uh, I don't remember, oh, it was my, my buddy, he said he knew a guy who used to be in the service, old, old dude, and he would always say, you know, he'd get these, uh, these drinks from Starbucks, you know, like the Frappuccinos, and it's just this grizzled dude, looks like he's been, like, chiseled out of wood, tads at the whole deal, and he'd look at my buddy down the eye and say, you can't be hard all the time. That's it. That's it. Definitely <laughs> it. <laughs> Well, for people who don't know you, Lance, so you have your company, Silas Dynamics. You do a lot. But for our listeners who don't know who you are, can you give a quick rundown, quick intro to who you are, what you do, and where you're going? Yeah, of course, man. Um, so right now, currently, I, I work full-time in public safety. Um, I work in an agency that does both fire and EMS services. I am a paramedic, um, and I do that full-time in pre-hospital medicine, and I also teach uh, with the state technical college system, I teach uh, EMS and help with paramedic programs and do that thing. Um, also, at the same time, I'm attempting to use CELUS as an outreach program to train individuals of all walks of life to learn all types of skills that will help them. Uh, we all have our own missions and we all have you know, things that we want to do and things that we need to do. And we need an outlet to be able to get together and uh, and train together to to complete that. And so I'm hundred percent aboard trying to facilitate that as much as possible with those I come in contact with. So. Awesome. Well, you're obviously on brand for, you know, what we're going for with this, our medical crash course series, this is basically just trying to pull the curtain back on uh, medical care. We know that not a lot of guys have a uh, background in medical pre-hospital care, post-hospital care, you know, what have you. And that's just something that, we need to to get over because everybody has this one body and you know it's your machine if you can't use it then you know you're sol so today the focus i wanted to talk about was uh i guess basically pre-hospital care for just basic injuries i want to talk about basic injury types whether that be acute or chronic you know traumatic or otherwise and what that looks like in the pre-hospital setting and uh just some basic, basic care that, you know, people can be looking at, or if they're not comfortable or, uh, ready to, you know, obviously give that care at this point where they can be, uh, where they can be looking at and where they can be going, you know, pushing towards in the future. Yeah, of course. Um, so my, my biggest recommendation starting off is, is going to be one where anytime you're dealing with medical, you're dealing with you know, a, a plethora of topics and, and different things that it, it takes a lifetime, a lot of times to, you know, master certain levels and do certain things. And you obviously understand you can continue to train every single day and continue to get further and further. And that's the same way as any topic that you want to get into. So my biggest recommendation is finding a place that you can start with, that you can get into, get that base level of knowledge, and then continue to kind of climb with that. Um, to be honest with you, you know, wherever you're listening to this at and, and wherever you are and wherever you're starting at, I highly recommend that you take all of this with a grain of salt. Uh, this is not the only way of doing things. And I, I fervently teach that every class I teach, I, I tell every individual, 
this is a way of doing things, not the only way. And, um, you know, the things I teach medically, obviously is going to be evidence-based medicine. It's going to be, you know, recognized best practices and, and that kind of stuff. And there are certain things I will be very staunch about and saying, yes, we need to try to deliver this care in this method and do that. But there are openings, you know, to, to go. And so one of the things I was taught very early on, you know, is, is one of the first days in, in med school, individuals are often taught, you know, uh, everything I teach you, you know, 10 years from now, 50% of it will be wrong. I just can't tell you which 50% it's going to be. And that's very important to understand because with medicine, we evolve constantly. We are practicing medicine, which means that what we are doing right now may not be accurate in 10 years from now. Uh, what we were taught 10 years ago may not be accurate now. And I think we've seen, you know, an insane amount of that occur and understand the relevancy and the time that it takes for these practices to come online. Uh, you know, we know right now, if you, if you open up an EMT textbook or you open up a paramedic textbook, what you are reading in that textbook right now was something that was being talked about and approved approximately 20 years ago. And that's, that's easy numbers for us. So if you think about right now, 2023, we would be the amount of information going to a textbook would be several months after the invasion of Iraq. That's where we are right now. Um, so that shows us how we need to grow and how we need to push forward with the way that we use technology, the way we use conferences, the way that we use classrooms to to expedite that knowledge forward. So, a hundred percent. And you know, thinking back to nursing school, to gold standards and evidence based practice and everything else, you know, we had instructors who uh, wouldn't teach by the book because they were falling back to their prior training. So, you know, like you said, make sure that your personnel, that your trainers are, you know, are spun up, up to speed and that everybody's on the same page is absolutely essential. And, you know, by definition, it doesn't happen. So very, very huge. But I do love what you're doing with Celis with, you know, taking a more holistic approach to, you know, to the problem of not just uh, targeting, you know, fighting age males, but, you know, taking the family, taking the wife, taking the kids, you know, anybody who wants to learn, you know, can learn, you know, that's absolutely essential. That's right. And, and, you know, we, we often think that our force multipliers are going to be buddies and they're going to be, you know, these guys over widespread areas and all that kind of stuff. But really we need to start looking at how the world works around us and how other, you know, nations, countries, lands, regions, have gotten into certain conflicts over the years and, and what they've had. And, you know, if you are, you know, just a everyday guy and gal and you have no commitments whatsoever, you have no family, you have nothing, this model may not work for you. You may be completely fine trying to tap in with other individuals who are solos and make a run for whatever, but there's a lot of us with families. And, you know, we have to figure out how to incorporate the total picture into what's going on. And I will say this, and I've always said it, but you know, if you're, if you are talking that you're out there training, you know, you're a guy with a spouse, you're a a gal with a spouse and you're the only one in the household training, then, then you are definitely far behind on what needs to happen. This needs to be an entire, you know, team approach. You, You need to have the entire family evolved. Um, a lot of times we try to take the significant other out of the equation and, and say, oh, well, they're not interested in that. This is something that I do. We need to find a way to make that happen. 
because there is there's only two categories in which we all fall into and that that's I mean that's everybody that we know and that's liabilities and that's assets. And if you are not making assets, then you are absolutely fortifying liabilities and and that's a conversation that needs to be out in the open. And I've had tons of people tell me, you know, just from simple contact with individuals and conversations, people that know me in in, in real life, man, if, if if anything ever happens, I'm I'm coming to your house. Yeah, no the hell you're not. Yeah. Um, that's not how this works. You know, you've got to be counted on to be counted in. And, you know, if we have individuals who are out there and, and they're not training, they're not prepared, you know, they're, they're living their life, which I have no problem with people living a normal life. I try to do that as much as I can, because for our mental and spiritual health, that's obviously absolute paramount to try to find balance. But the problem is, is that at the end of the day, you, you cannot go out and, you know, watch football and do this and do that and put no time in the game of training and preparing. And when things get uncomfortable for you, the only thing you're going to show up to at my house or your house is going to be, you know, your diabetic uh, mother-in-law and a can of beefaroni. That's not how this works, you know? So we have to plow in now. We have to have those uncomfortable conversations now and, and start figuring out where do we sit on each side of the line? you know, and, and where we go from there with it. So. So coming from someone who isn't from, you know, the pre-hospital or even medical field, um, what are some basic things that these people need to be learning short of, you know, hitting the fan kind of thing? Like what's just some, these basic level knowledge and skills that people need to be learning just to start off with, just to be a warm, fuzzy kind of thing. Sure. Well, I would tell you this, um, the approach I've always tried to take with almost everything that I do is kind of like one inch away from the body and then to affinity. I know that might sound strange, but you think about like survival and the rules of three, you know, how, how that works. And we can go into much more detail on that in the future, but some of you probably have heard that before. Um, when it comes to medicine, we're talking about the same thing. The, the first thing that I would try to encompass is how it reflects to your everyday carrier and your everyday preparation, because that will probably be, be your first contact and the the most statistical, you know, field that you're you're going to get into. And so, with that, I highly recommend that a lot of individuals start by focusing on trauma care. They start focusing on combat type trauma. We're talking about, you know, gunshot wounds, you know, high ballistic lateral fragmentation, all those things that encompass that. And they start learning how to manage simple trauma cases. And to be honest with you, there's, there's a whole reason. Um, if you've never heard of the Hartford consensus and understanding where that's coming from, you need to go look it up. That's a very civilian side of the house. That's a response to Sandy Hook and everything that happened in a natural res- or a, a national response that went from there. But this is what brought us programs like Stop the Bleed. You know, this is what brought us programs like Rescue Task Force across national public safety. And, um, this gets us to the point that, you know, individuals need to have a a very basic kit with them and they need to focus on bleeding control, hemorrhage control, you know, all these type of of tools that they can use to, to do that. And so that's where I would start is basic trauma care, bleeding control, and then moving into things like basic airway management, basic respirations, and then algorithms that have been built you know, through evidence-based medicine and best practices kind of moving forward from there. Once we start understanding that whole concept and we know how to treat it, then we need to start looking at more long-term care, prolonged field care, and just basic medicine and basic medical practices for 
for sustaining a healthy human over a certain period of time. I mean, that's, that's my opinion. That would be my approach on it. And that's kind of how I would recommend others start taking a, a, a bite of the elephant, you know, at a time with that. So. I like it. Well, well, and the great thing is that that framework's already there. You know, we have TC3, we have right. fire, tactical field care, tactical evacuation care. We have prolonged field care and, you know, we have resources like deployed medicine, which is, you know, everything the army has to this point, we have everything that people can tap into, uh, you know, and, you know, the plethora of, you know, GWAT folks that are putting on those classes. So it's, you know, readily available. People just need to get into it, but hundred percent agree. So, you know, you're stop the bleed, you know, you're, uh, you're carrying fire moving into March, you know, with your hemorrhage, your airway, everything else, um, towards the end of, you know, that list working, we worried about uh, CPR, but you know, that's very readily available too. I mean, any medical, uh, for anybody working in healthcare has to be, uh, BLS certified, have that up to date. So a lot of the stuff is already, you know, already here. That's, that's correct. But I feel like, yeah, but I feel like what, you know, I completely agree with the spirit of what you're saying and, you know, the whole I'll show up to your house mentality needs to go because I feel like this is not even, you know, on one side of the house or the other, but I feel like it's just being a responsible adult. You know, this is a societal problem. If you cannot help someone, if they're in a medical emergency, then, you know, like you said, you're a liability. You're yep. one of those people hanging around the sidelines, you know, taking a video with your phone. You know, as a society, as a culture, we need to get better. Yeah, I 100% agree with that. And and to be honest with you, we, we have to think about what we perceive and, and what we find out is our response. And so with Cellus from day one, I've always been about, you know, very much and an what I call an all hazards approach. You know, you think about a, just a combination of things and how you can, you know, buffer against it, train against it, and how you can move forward with that as individuals. You know, yes, you carry a gun, you carry this, you carry that. That's great. You, you need that all-hazards approach. But as a pre-hospital provider, if someone were to think about what I do for a living and, and what I have the most experience in, you know, I can guarantee you is that is it someone who is suffering multi-system trauma from gunshot wounds, or is it someone who is in cardiac arrest from a, a medical pathophysiological problem? And the answer is going to be that cardiac arrest. Um, just as a society, just what we face on a statistical area, you know, we have to be able to conform to what we're going to experience. And we have to think about that. Yes, we all have this idea of, of what I call my gunfight and, you know, we think about, okay, well, I'm going to be in the woods with, with, you know, four or five of my buddies and we're going to be running and gunning and breaking contact and, and doing all these things. And, and yes, you may prepare for that. And yes, you may build for that. And that's outstanding. You should definitely think about those concepts, but what are you going to do before then? You know, what, what are you going to do now when I go to work in the morning or when I go on vacation or when I do this, what am I, what am I going to face? And, and if you get on to you know, into contact with something because, it, and if you've heard anything I've ever done, you know, our, our individuals in uniform, they're not first responders. And I know that will kind of chafe some of them that that's fine, deal with it, but we, we're not first responders. I'll tell you that I'm a, I'm, I'm a second responder because a lot of times when, when something has happened, there is a layman on hand 
um, who is a part of it. And I'll be honest with you, we hear it nonstop in certain calls where the dispatching authority will tell us that the persons on scene have refused instructions on care. Okay. And that includes family. That includes people who are closest to the individual refusing CPR, refusing any other thing. They say, I can't do it. I don't know how to do it. I'm going to wait until something happens. And the problem with that, and I think we are all understanding that no matter what your baseline level is, is that when these events occur, time is life. We don't have time. We don't have seconds and minutes to delay. It needs to happen quickly. It needs to happen aggressively and, and go from there. So if you are one of those first responders, which is the layman on scene, you need to be able to do something immediately and you need to be able to do something aggressively and it needs to be accurate in nature. So if, if you think, and I, I'll tell this to anybody out there, you know, if you think you are above going to take a CPR course because you think that that's not sexy, you think that that's not, you know, SEAL Team 6 enough for you, you're wrong. I'm just flat out telling you, you are wrong. Um, there is only one thing that is sexy out there in the training and that is brilliance in the basics. And if you are not interested in the basics and you're not interested in, in building upon that, you are probably going to find yourself in a complete cycle of failure over and over and over again, no matter what you're trying to encompass, you know? So, so that is, that is definitely my recommendation on that is try to seek out all the subjects, try to get the training in and things that we consider basic or mundane or whatever, and, and really maximize on that and really specialize in those things. Because, you know, when the metal hits the meat, that is generally the things that we need the most and we need it the fastest. Um, and I try to tell it, you know, as an instructor and as an educator, you know, in teaching high echelon, you know, medical care is that probably 95% of the time I do not do things that are some type of mystical, magical, you know, very in-depth practice. 95% of the time, if I'm going to intervene in something that is going to have somebody live or die, and hopefully it's going to be live because that's what we're after, it is going to be something that is basic in nature. It's going to be rapid recognition of what's going on, and it is going to be rapid and accurate intervention of what's taking place. And generally, it will be at a very basic level. And so that's what we need to get to, all of us where we are applying that same type of practice to our, our approach to, to do that. You, none of us are too good, you know, or, or too cool to, to practice basics and really, really master those. So. hundred percent. And we never will be, you know, brilliance and basics. Like you said, that is something that needs to be, you know, being to death because that's what you're going to fall back to, you know, when, you know, when you, lose everything else in the moment you have your foundation that you've built. If you don't have foundation, then, you know, like you said, you're going to be, you're, you're just going to be lost in that cycle of failure. And that can be catastrophic when you're talking about medical emergencies. So digging a little more uh, into the subject. So let's go into some, some basic types of injuries. So some injuries sustained. So, lacerations, abrasions, burns. So lacerations, laceration, uh, you want to dig into that. And that can be, you know, small, large, large, small, whatever you uh, feel like will be most effective. Yeah. And I'll preface it by saying this, the way that I was taught originally was uh, a ditty, you know, and I think we've probably heard this term before, but it was keyword callop, crush, abrasion, laceration, incision, and puncture. 
And those were the, the five types of wounds. And obviously I've learned that there's more and there's different variations, but at the core level, I actually still will teach um, that concept. And so when I, I break this down, okay, and, and bear with me for a minute, there are things that we, we need to understand about the parts of the body that will be affected by this, okay? And if you can imagine in your mind, obviously we're, we're, we're here on audio, and so you have to, to use your brain and, and create images of what we're saying. But these practices and, and these wounds and, and these aspects will cover certain areas. And I need you to take the four limbs of the body, the arms and the legs, and I need you to separate them into their own zone. And then I need you to take the core of the body, which is going to be the chest and the abdomen, and I need you to keep it in its own zone, okay? And then later on, we'll talk about the head and, and how, you know, our nervous system and everything takes effect and how it'll be its own zone and everything like that. But when we get into concept of lacerations, right, and, and this is simple as it is, a laceration means that we have some type of object that is sharp or it is fast and it will cut through flesh and it will create an elongated channel through that flesh. And it can be deep, it can be shallow, it doesn't matter. But if you've, we've probably all cut ourselves before with a knife and you know what that looks like, okay? When you take a dive into the anatomy, the, the limbs or the extremities, they are the ones that we are probably going to see the most musculoskeletal damage and vascular damage faster than, than the other zones. And the reason being is because the limbs are made for one purpose, to support the skeleton, to, to support the body, and to create locomotion and movement for that to occur. So yes, they are full of muscle, they are full of blood, and they are full of bone. They will create any type of movement, any type of dynamic you know, type of, of, of activity. That is their sole purpose is to, to support the rest of that body. So when this occurs, you know, the best thing that you can look for and the, the quickest thing you can look for is how deep is this laceration and how bad is it? How, how much are we bleeding from this, right? And I will, will explain this and try to keep it as basic as possible. But there are three different types of vasculature that we will find in the body, okay? And in the base level, they are, they are built by size. And I try to, to, to basically describe this even in EMT courses where we think about going to Lowe's and we look at plumbing and we look at plumbing supplies and we look at pipes and couplings and all these different things. Here's what we're looking at. When you take a look, the, the largest pipes that we have in our body, they're going to be of two categories. They're going to be going and they're going to be coming, right? And the central thing that ties those together is going to be the heart. That's going to be the grand pump or the grand motor in the body. And all of those pipes that are moving away from the body, they are supplying oxygen-rich blood to the tissues, which we must have, and those will be arterial in nature. Those are going to be arteries, arterioles, and they're going to go into the capillary section and then switch back and start going into the pipes that are going to bring blood back to the heart, right? And the blood that is coming back to the heart does not have that oxygen-rich characteristic to it. It is given its oxygen to the tissues, and it has picked up metabolic waste, mostly in the format of carbon dioxide and other elements, and it must now get rid of those elements out of the body. So when we come away from that, those capillaries switch into a venous model. We go into venules, which are a little larger, and then we go into veins, which are even larger, back to the heart. So on the actual uh, extremity portion of what we're looking at, 
if we cut into that flesh and we cut into that tissue, I, I need people to understand that most of the time, almost all considerations, is that arteries and arterioles are much deeper in the tissue than what we see veins and capillaries, okay? And so a lot of times, if you have a shallow wound channel, for the most part, thankfully, we will run into a venous type of bleed. Um, and that means that we're not seeing a spurting type of blood. We're not seeing it match with a pulse. A lot of time it's slow and it's oozing coming out of those pipes. That's great. That's really what we want. That's what we would love to, to work with and deal with. But then sometimes when we go into certain places and we go to certain depths, that's when our wounds will develop an arterial nature to them where we will see a much more uh, larger source of blood and bleeding. And we will see a pulsatile type of bleeding, you know, where the pulse matches what the heart is doing. And we know we're pretty much in trouble when it comes to that, because obviously we're understanding you only have so much blood in your body, you know, and every individual person, you, you only have so much blood. And I know we're all taught that we all have on average five liters of blood in the body. That's actually not accurate. You know, it's actually weight based according to your size. And I will tell you right off the bat, if you were a male, you know, what you could do if you want to figure out how much blood you have in your body right now is you need to turn your weight into kilograms, right? You, you need to be able to, to take that pounds and you need to be able to convert to kilograms. And basically from there, what you're going to do is you're going to multiply a male is 75 milliliters per kilogram. If you take that uh, number, you're going to get a four-digit number, right, which will be how many milliliters of blood you have in the body. If you just put a decimal point after that first number, you're looking at liters, right? So myself, I weigh about 235, and for myself, I'm looking at close to about eight liters of blood that's in my body. That's a lot more than what we're taught, you know, as far as the five liters. And most of us cannot determine by looking at a person and how they're wounded how much blood has left the body. You know, we have to look at signs and symptoms to determine, you know, how much blood have we lost and what is our recovery and what are we looking at from that. So going from there, those lacerations that we see can make up a very large and dangerous spectrum of, of, of blood loss. And anytime we look at our extremities, we generally will have a more rapid blood loss there in that skeletal tissue that we, we must stop. And to be honest with you, that first line that you're going to deal with is going to be tourniquet usage. Those extremities, the, the tourniquets are made for extremities. That, that is the first line of, of what's happening. Used to, we used to be in the, the, the practice that, you know, we will we'll use direct pressure on these areas. You know, we'll use the, and if direct pressure doesn't work, then we'll go to a tourniquet. Well, we've reversed that. There's no sense of going to direct pressure on these wounds because all you are doing is, is pro, you know, prolonging time. And there's only so much blood, and the more blood that you lose, the worse chance you have over time, not just in the immediate moment, but over the next, you know, 36, 48 hours and all the deeper things that go with that. So I 100% recommend any of these wounds that you see pulsatile type of bleeding, we go to a tourniquet, you know, and in conjunction with that, we can also use wound packing for these wound channels as well, trying to find these, these places of pulsatile bleeding and pack this bleeding and, and do all that kind of stuff. So that covers lacerations and that covers a lot of physiology that we would have to talk about later when it comes to other types of wounds and just getting that out of the, out of the way as well. So. Awesome. Would you, would you just mention real quick, just some uh, basic guidelines for tourniquet usage and for, or I guess tourniquet placement 
um, how to check a tourniquet, and then you mentioned wound packing, yeah, which a lot of people do wrong. Yeah, and, and there is, it has been such an aggravation, to be honest with you, to see certain characters um, and, and personalities and individuals on social media, and I've watched it for several years, years now, that, um, that we've gone through our tourniquet usage and obviously understanding people, not staging them correctly, not doing this, and there was a lot of ego involved or whatever, and there's a very Dunning-Kruger effect with a lot of these individuals I've seen. Um, and to me, that's, that's a very aggravating aspect to it. And I will tell you this, when it comes to tourniquet usage, um, you're generally taught two practices you know, to use, and that is either high and tight, which means you go to the very top of that limb towards the core, and you place that tourniquet there, right? The other aspect is that you are taught two to three inches above the wound. Okay, as long as that is not on a joint, you, you will not put a tourniquet on a, a knee, you will not put a tourniquet on an elbow, those are non-compressible joints. We cannot use that to, to work in that aspect. However, this is my recommendation for those who do not have a background in medicine and who are using you know, a bare bones approach. I recommend that you go high and tight with your tourniquet. And the reason being is because it's less time that you are attempting to expose the wound you are getting there, you are actually applying it, you're stopping that, that bleed immediately. There's other things that laymen don't understand about the application. You know, we can have an injury that will occur, and for use big words or med terms, you know, we can have vasculature that will rescind into the cavity, that endothelial cell reaction where it wants to protect itself and it retracts. Um, you know, you, if you cut major arteries, there is a, there is a chance that the elasticity of that will cause that withdrawal. So if you're using a two to three inches above the wound, you actually could be placing a tourniquet past the point where that vasculature is exposed and retracted. Um, that's going to cause a large hematoma collection of blood into the tissues. And we are still losing blood. It may not be as bad, but we're still not where we need to be. I would rather the layman person go high and tight and then have a higher echelon provider assess the wound and then figure out where we need to go with tourniquet conversion and then fixing that later on, okay? Um, when you look at tourniquets and, and you look at their usage, you know, uh, the organization COTSI is kind of the, the guide to, to what we use, the, the Council on Tactical Combat Casualty Care. And they don't sponsor anything, they just recommend things based on evidence. Um, and that's kind of what we use to choose tourniquets. I, I, I'm not sponsored by North American Rescue, but I guarantee you that all the medical gear that I use for tourniquets comes from North American Rescue. Um, I've used several different types in the field. I've trained thousands at this point on different applications and different ones. And I will tell you that using a combat application tourniquet, to, in my opinion, is the number one tool that I will put into the field every time. The combat application tourniquet or the cat tourniquet is the one that I have had to come behind other brands to fix their application with a cat. Okay, I've never had to come behind a cat and fix it, but I've had to go beyond or behind other Kotsi recommended tourniquets and fix them. So, you know, if you're out there and you're looking for tourniquets, which you should, um, and you're wanting to buy them, let me go ahead and give you a disclaimer. Do not buy your tourniquets off of Amazon there's a good chance they're made in China and they are fake. Um, don't be the individual who says, well, I found this tourniquet on Amazon and it's half the cost and it looks like the same thing as that tourniquet. Don't do that. There's a reason it's half the cost. There's a reason it's made in China. 
Um, you know, you are going to trust your life to something that is, you know, made subpar. It's going to break when you use it more than likely. You need to avoid that. Just go for the real thing. And, you know, I think right now a cat tourniquet costs $29, somewhere in there. If your life isn't worth $29, then I, I don't know what to tell you, you know, on, on that aspect. So buy the real thing, use the real thing. I highly recommend if you're going to buy one tourniquet, you buy two, two tourniquets. One's a training tourniquet, one's a real tourniquet. You mark the one that's the trainer and you use it. We understand that even though they're great, there's only so many times they can be used and tightened until eventually they all will break. You don't want that being your primary. You want that to be your, your actual trainer. So that's my recommendation for the tourniquet usage. Obviously, tourniquets can only be used on extremities. Um, there's other scenarios that we can create junctionals, but that's much more down the road um, and, and their application on that. But definitely for lacerations, definitely for deep wound channels with arterial bleeding, we are going to go, my recommendation is high and tight application of those tourniquets until a higher echelon provider can assess and determine a further treatment plan for that. 100%. And then could you also touch on uh, wound packing? Yeah, of course. Um, so wound packing is very interesting. And the way I like to describe this is because I, I get this question all the time. Well, which one's better tourniquet or wound packing, right? It truly depends on what you're what you're dealing with, right? The shape of the wound, the characteristic of the wound and the resources that you have on hand. So to me, it's not a one or the other. A lot of times it's used in conjunction with both or a resource dependent scenario of what I'm going to use and how I'm going to do it. Now, when we talk about obviously the extremities, uh, arms and legs, there generally is not anything that a tourniquet cannot handle right? We, we find very few situations where a tourniquet cannot take care of the extremity bleed. Even when we deal with the legs and we're looking at individuals with larger tissue, larger legs, for whatever reason, muscular, obese, or whatever, you know, we can look at a concept called kissing tourniquets, where we have two tourniquets that are side by side. They're increasing the actual space of pressure that's on the arterial bleed and shutting off the blood to the extremity. But if we kind of move up from those areas and we start talking about junctional areas, you know, in our pelvis, in our hip, in, you know, our armpits underneath, our subclavian areas, even all those locations, we can't put tourniquets on those places. Yeah, you can use junctional tourniquets, but you would have to have a commercial tourniquet or you would have to be able to manufacture a hasty improvised junctional tourniquet very rapidly, which I'll be honest with you, even with advanced providers, a lot of them cannot do because they just don't practice it enough or they don't have the resources on hand. So when you want to do wound packing, I want you to imagine if you were to dig a hole, right? You're like, you're digging a well in the ground and you say, okay, well, I got water that's rising up in this well and that water is blood and that blood is coming from some type of broken pipe. And that pipe can be an artery. It's been hurt. A piece of that outside wall is missing and blood is just filling up into the space. If you don't stop that bleeding, that person will eventually die or be put into a situation where they're just simply not going to survive long-term anyways because of the, the insult that's occurred. When we're doing the wound packing, I tried to make a mental image of almost Tetris, right? You remember the different pieces and how you shape them and how they fall down to the bottom and you want them layered evenly as they go to the top. You don't want any gaps. You don't want any spaces. Well, or, the whole space. Right? <laughs> or, or if you think about pouring concrete into this hole, you're, you're wanting to basically 
take this device, this item, you know, a gauze, a hemostatic gauze, which it just means that it helps you clot is all that is. And you want to pack it forcefully and tightly into the entirety of this space because you're creating a false wall against the vasculature that is bleeding. You need to create a wall there in which the blood can slow down because only when it slows down is it going to allow clotting abilities to take place and the bleeding to stop. And so then we're going to continue to pack that wound channel all the way out to the surface, like Tetris, fill in all those gaps. And then we're going to get to that place where we come to the outer edge. And then at that outer edge, we can apply direct pressure. We can use pressure bandages and keep that plug in place to stop that bleeding, you know, until we can figure out a surgical uh, answer for, for that damage that's been done. Because all of this is based upon the ability to access surgery in the end. A tourniquet is no different in a conversion. Wound packing is no different in its conversion. We all need definitive care to, to take care of this at the end of the day. So, um, and there's two types of, of, of items that we find for wound packing. They're going to be the hemostatic gauze and they're going to be regular gauze. The hemostatic gauze, the biggest ones that we see are going to be the C locks and they're going to be the quick clot. Those are the ones that use a, a hemostat, which helps encourage clotting. It's either a chitosan or a kaolin, which means a shellfish or a crustacean or a clay-based material to help uh, encourage clotting, or just regular gauze, which has nothing in it. But obviously, the hemostatic will cause a clot to occur quicker than the regular gauze, and that's something that we need to understand when we go to use those in our kits about what our limitations and our times are as far as the application of those, those devices will be. What's your opinion on some of these guys saying, oh, well, you know, for wound packing, I just carry around a tampon. Jesus. Um, I have a very simple, a simple process to that. And I don't mean, I don't mean to be, yeah, I do. I'm an asshole. I'm just going to say that. Do it. I, I do mean Send to it. just go for it. <laughs> if you think that a, a, a tampon will take care of bullet holes, you neither understand vaginas nor bullet holes. Okay. Um, and that goes back to simple principles for you. Okay. That tampon is used to control, you know, approximately 30 to 50, you know, cc's of blood, maybe total, you know, this, this is, this is even that would be a, a widespread, you know, version of it. More than likely, you're probably talking about much smaller than that. Uh, five cc's maybe, you know, but the issue with that is, is that if you think you can take this small plug of cotton and put it into just the middle of a channel and expect it to perform, you have no idea what's going on underneath the surface there. You, you need to be able to put, you know, I'll put it this way. When we use live meat in training, which we do often when we do wound pack, and I, I have simulators, but I always love to use real meat to simulate because it, it really sets the, the, the tone and brings it home to individuals. I can take, you know, two, four yard, talking about 16 foot long, right? rolls of galls and put them into one wound channel. You're, you're talking about a massive amount of galls going into a wound channel that is nothing compared to a tampon. And what's going to happen if you place a tampon into a wound channel, it is just going to continue to bleed underneath it. You're going to have this large pocket of bleeding and this hematoma occur and the blood loss has not stopped. Eventually it will soak all the way through and blood will go past that. And it is nothing but a conduit. It's a mop at that time and blood will just continue to come out of that wound. So if you think a tampon 
is going to work for this, then I, I'm sorry, you're wrong. That's just not how that works. The, the, that's never been a thing. That never will be a thing. And you need to go ahead and just just dump that and go to things that, that are known to work. So we all knew the answer to that, but to the, it needed to be said. I you just want to be inflammatory. Oh, yeah. Like, yeah, I had to. It just it goes back to how serious you know you take your health and the people who you plan on being under your care. You know, it's the same thing as, you know, trusting an off-brand tourniquet or, you know, these weird practices that aren't based on evidence that, you know, are just he should he said, she said sort of stuff. That's exactly. You know, this is this is too important for, you know, not just yourself. I mean, you can do with you what you want, but if you're playing on taking care of, you know, somebody else as a good Samaritan or, you know, as a husband, as a father, as, you know, a community member, then you need to do your due diligence here. Absolutely. And absolutely. There's so much stuff in life that you, you can just skimp on. You can buy the cheap stuff. And I feel like one of the most important things in life is medical and you should not ever skimp on quality on that stuff. So don't be cheap on this crap. I, I, you know, just to give you a, a quick antidote, I had a, a med class years ago where a gentleman showed up and, and he had what he called an IFAC and he had, he had z- like things like zip ties you know, in his IFAC and he was going to use those for tourniquets. And I, I, yes, yeah, hundred percent. I joked because when he dumped out his IFAC, it was very much like the scene in Jaws where they catch that first shark and they cut up in his belly and there's like a boot and a license plate and just trash in there. And that's kind of what he was rolling with on that. And, And it's just, you know, it comes from, oh, well, my buddy who's this and that, or my buddy who's friends with this guy, this is what they said that they use and this is what we can. And it's, it, that's not how that works. We have to be able to, in all things, go into evidence-based practices. And I'm one of those individuals right now that if you came to me and you show me evidence-based medicine, and if it contradicts what I know, instead of digging in, I'll say, cool, Roger that. Let's go in that direction right now. I'll adapt immediately, maintain my flexibility, and we'll go into whatever that best practice is. Now we'll do that until that changes into something else. And I feel like that's how that works with everything that we do, no matter the discipline, that should be the flexibility that we take to the field of understanding that, that things do change. We do learn more things and, and we do learn better things and we must always be able to, to move in those directions, you know, whatever it may be. So. Definitely. So moving on to abrasion, so abrasions, scrapes, rubs, you know, it, it's trauma to your integumentary system. It's trauma to your skin causing enough kinetic energy scraping against that outer layer to where you're actually causing damage. You're opening up that, uh, you know, those lower levels of tissue. You have the opportunity to get infection to, you know, depending on the severity, you know, uh, you know, affect the underlying anatomy there. But what is, you know, obviously this will base on severity, but what should be some highlights for people wanting to manage this on their own? So when we think about the skin and we think about its purpose, you know, we're, we're talking about number one is to keep the outside world from coming in, right? It's to keep the inside of us from coming out. And it's also to help us regulate both our temperature and our, you know, ability to maintain hydration, electrolytes, everything else that goes with that. 
Um, and that's why we see in burn patients or whatever that, that exchange and third spacing and all that other kind of stuff. Now, when we have abrasions, we're generally taking just the outer layer of the epidermis or a little bit of the lower layer of the dermis. And we're, we're taking that away from some type, type of kinetic force. Your drug against something, friction generally is what's based upon that. A raspberry, road rash, whatever that is. Mm. I was going to say road rash for sure. For sure. Yeah. And, and we are, we're taking that layer off. Now, at that top layer, a lot of times it's not very deep vasculature there. We're looking at capillary type effects. So if you look at that raspberry, so to speak, you'll see these little droplets of blood that are really small. And that's the exposed capillary that are just, you know, blood is just coming out of that, that area. Now, for the most part, it is an annoyance for us, right? Everyday life, it would be an annoyance. Long-term application, though, we do look that once we have an opening in that flesh, then we now have the ability for bacteria to enter an unprotected space and come into the body. No matter what, if you look at, you know, all the things, if you're not dealing with massive hemorrhage in, in the modern battlefield or immediate airway compromise, the number one killer of individuals to this day is still infection. They survive, they go home, they, you know, they go through the process. Infection is still that killer that faces them. So with us, if we're talking about austere environments, we may not have antibiotics. We may not have, you know, sterile supplies or whatever. You will be dealing with that same concept. So I highly recommend anytime that you find yourself with that abrasion, what needs to happen, we need to bandage that. We need to protect it. And we need to make sure that we are trying to keep a minimum amount of stuff that's going into it. You know, in the process of, of how the flesh works and what occurs is we can't keep something covered nonstop. Okay. You look at anybody who's in wound care or they're in, you know, any type of long-term, you know, ulcers, decubitus, whatever it may be, you cannot just keep that covered nonstop because generally we have three different things that are trying to kill us at any given time on the patho level. We've got fungus, we've got bacteria, and we got virus that's trying to get into our body at some point. And we can succumb to any of those three, and that's what makes up the bulk of our infections as it enters the body. Um, with that entire aspect though, we have to be able to say, okay, we've covered this wound. However, this wound still needs to open back up. We need to be able to actually take the bandage off, allow some things to dry out. We don't need to keep it wet full time because if we take, you know, bacteria and we wrap it and we keep it tight and then we create an anaerobic environment, then we can start looking at fungal infections and then back and forth. So the best thing is going back and forth, back and forth, keeping it clean, keeping it washed, covered again, let it dry, wash, covered again, and so on and so forth. Um, one of the, the awesome books that I've read years ago, and I still highly recommend it, is a book that's called Ditch Medicine. Um, you find it online. It is, it is very austere in nature. You know, it's probably 20, 30 years old right now. But one of the interesting things that they showed in this book was using sugar to treat wounds in austere environments. Mm. And what's crazy about it is, you know, the fact that the sugar was used, the case study was a man who had shot himself in the foot with a shotgun. So he probably had a hole in, in the, the, the top aspect of his foot all the way through about the size of a half dollar. Well, that wound obviously doesn't want to close, you know, it's a circle. It, it doesn't, it doesn't want to, to, uh, you know, uh, granulize very well. Approximate. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So he, he yeah. battled that and it stayed open and it stayed open and stayed open. Well, they started packing it with sugar and it healed, you know, very quickly. And the thing to realize with the sugar is that, you know, at first when it's applied, 
It creates an anaerobic environment, which the bacteria doesn't want to be a part of. But if you allow it to sit and mix with the, you know, the fluid that's coming out of the cells, it will create this liquid goo that will attract anaerobic properties. And then it will turn into infection in other ways. So what they would have to do is pack it with sugar. And then 12 hours later, unwrap it, wash it, clean it, pack it with sugar, unwrap it, and then continue this process over time, which allowed it to heal on its own. So that, that takes some ability to observe and, and do those type of things as well. That's so interesting it's to me. Very, very cool how, how that works. Very cool. So yeah, any abrasions, whatever you're looking at, whether it's 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 a small abrasion versus you know a larger, like an avulsion where we have a flap that opens up on something, you need to understand has the vasculature been affected? You know, are, are we is the tissue necrotic and dying because of it? How how can we affect that? You know, we're getting larger where we need to debride the wound and cut off the dead tissue and then apply or whatever. And those are things on the simple level. We just don't have good answers for that, obviously, um, with a, a lower echelon treatment. But for sure, no matter what you're doing, the skin is the baseline layer. Protect the skin. I know we're all dudes and we're hardcore and we're this and that. Use lotion, right? Especially in the wintertime or whatever. When you get cracks in your skin and your, you know, your fingers are all like mine are actually right now. I should preach into the choir. When, when you have problems with that, you know, those cracks in those areas allow bacteria to get in. Um, it allows infection to come in. And in an austere environment, if you're staying wet, if you're staying sweating, if you're staying, you know, not letting your, your clothes dry, your boots dry, you will develop sores and those sores will fester and cause infection. It will kill you in the end. So you have to be able to take care of that skin layer and make sure that nothing can kind of get into the body from there on those. So very important. Pieces as we're all sitting here checking our fingertips to see how cracked they are. We're all gonna well, we're all gonna thinking, die. I never <laughs> I never had this issue until I moved to to Texas. I'm from Oregon originally. Yeah, gotcha. But I moved to Texas and my my thumbs especially like they will like open up like overnight to where they'll bleed. Sure. Like it's it's absolute insanity. But to to your point about you know about those those friction points and just it will sneak up on you. It will sneak up on you so fast. I know that, you know, we've, we've all had issues with like boots, you know, just like yeah. rubbing, you know, into your heels, into your toes, into the balls of your feet, top of your feet, especially, you know, you'll get lit up. But I used to work in long-term care and just the action of laying with your body weight oh, yeah. in one position for too long. And the cubitus ulcers you know, and all that. Will, yeah. Yeah. For sure. Yeah. And people don't even think about it, but, you know, talking especially about, you know, long-term care. You're talking about, uh, uh, what am I trying to say? Like, you know, prolonged field care, you know, taking care of someone over a long period of time, like it will mess you up. Yeah. Coming up with a and rotation schedule so for casualties, doing mm-hmm. all things and keeping from laying on hard surfaces, you know, using spine starts, boards, so et cetera, all that stuff. Yeah. For yeah. sure. But absolutely essential. You, you touched on burdens a little bit, mm-hmm. you know, especially with hydration infection, do you want to uh, dig into that a little bit more? Yeah, of course. So, so burns are something that you're going to have a very high fatality, um, you know, percentage when it comes to burns. You know, and right. burns obviously are are you know categorized according to the size and the depth and the heat and the contact. There's different types of burns. You know, you have chemical burns, you have thermal burns. You know, you you have this aspect. But you have to understand that a burn is basically characterized as any time you have some type of, of heat 
energy or device that comes into contact with the flesh and it will raise the temperature or a caustic reaction and it will cause cellular destruction because of that. Now, when that occurs, we have different areas, right? We look at the, the actual width of the burn, and that's gonna be the surface area that it expands, and then we look at the depth of the burn. So used to, we used to use, um, you know, uh, degrees of burn, first degree burn, second degree, third degree burn. We're no longer using that, we're no longer teaching that. We're now dealing with superficial burns, partial thickness burns and full thickness burns. That's the scope that has replaced those. And uh, I'm very lucky, you know, I live in Georgia and we have JM Styles in Augusta, which is a massive, you know, burn center here. And they are some of the individuals that teach advanced burn life support. And I highly recommend if you're a provider to go take that course and, and to, to learn everything that goes with that. But the, the issue with is that when we have these burns, we must calculate the width of the burn and the depth of the burn. And then we must look at the cellular destruction that goes with that because, you know, it can be as, as simple as like a, a superficial burn is a sunburn, you know, it's a little bit red. That's it. You have the outer layer has been affected by some type of radiation or even thermal contact. And we just have that, that destruction. Now, over the next couple of days, it's going to dry out. The cells are going to die. You're going to start peeling, you know, and then the base layer is coming out underneath it. You're probably fine. When we get into superficial burns, which used to be the secondary burn, we're going to see the redness. And we're also going to see the developing of blisters at that point. And even what is called light sloughing, which is where the tissue is dead on top. And it's just coming off like you can peel mm. layers, like you're taking a blister off or something like that. That can get you know a little bit worse, obviously, and, and very prone to infection or whatever. And then the full thickness burn is going to be anywhere from what we call the third degree to burn to the fourth degree burn, where we are burning through tissue, we are burning through nerve, we are burning through bone even sometimes, depending on how we have it. Now, the management of burns are, is going to be a game of long-term care, right? Because it's not the burn that kills you, it's the metabolic effect upon the body. And, um, if we look at areas like extremities and if we have what we call as a circumferential burn, which means it burns all the way around the edge of that flesh, you got to think about that burn. If you ever cooked a steak and you burned a steak or anything before you've looked at it and you say, damn, that's tough. I probably don't want to eat that. Right. Same thing with any other type of flesh. It's going to be hard. It's going to be leathery and it's going to build what's called an escar. And if that happens on an extremity, it's going to be tight, you know, and what happens is that flesh is going to want to swell against that because of the edema and the, and the fluid that occurs. And we can most definitely have something called compartment syndrome that occurs. You know, the blood flow versus what is returning is not adequate. And we are going to probably lose that limb, if not cause death through the metabolic waste that builds up in the body, which is very dangerous at that point in time. You'll even, if you ever want to look at a fasciotomy, escherotomy. You'll see these images of them cutting deep gouging cuts through the flesh and the fascia. Long. Yes, to to allow the tissue to expand. You know, it's pretty gruesome. It's pretty terrible. Um, that's probably a place I would never want to work as a burn unit. I just, from, you know, learning and being a part of that, I just that's a terrible, terrible thing going on there. Be, it'd be miserable. Yes, 100%. Yeah. So, um, so you have that going on. And then uh, the other thing is that the effect of the body. It, we understand that the tissue in the skin, we, like I talked about earlier, it is that outside layer protecting you from, you know, damage, infection, all these things. But when we upset the balance of the way that tissue is built, 
we are made of nothing but fluids and salts. At our basic level, fluids and salts. If you ever, if you know what electrolytes are, you ever taken a common, you know, chemistry class or whatever, you will understand that every electrolyte, whether it's potassium, calcium, sodium, whatever, it is a salt. It is crystalline in nature. It doesn't have to be sodium chloride to be salt. It is a salt. And so what occurs is we are always looking for the movement that's appropriate in these electrolytes and these fluids throughout the body. And that's how we do everything. That's how we live. And so with these burns, we are opening ourselves up for the fluids and the salts to move out of the places they are supposed to be into places they are not supposed to be. And if you ever want to look up third spacing or interstitial fluid, you'll see that. And these burn patients will weep. This fluid will continue to shift and it will happen. And what it looks like is really no different than a patient who has massive blood loss. You know, the, the amount of blood serum in, in the vasculature will de decline. Blood pressures will drop. They will look like shock is occurring. There's things, it's, it's relative hypovolemia. And so with these individuals, we must have very aggressive fluid resuscitation with them to, to keep them. Because what happens is that if we have this collection of, you know, of, of metabolic processes and, and waste, it's going to kill the body processes. A lot of our burn patients don't die from the burn. They die from the secondhand effect. We'll see our kidneys fail, our liver fail, our lungs fail, and our brain fail. Something called MODS, your multiple organ dysfunction syndrome, is going to kill them. Um, it's going to wipe them out. You know, that kidney failure is very real because if you look at all these metabolic processes that are in the blood that are trying to be processed out, it will kill those kidneys and, and lead to, you know, very aggressive uh, death from there on out. I will tell you this, if you're dealing with a burn patient on a simple level, do not put wet things on a burn patient, right? That used to be the thing. Um, you know, when I was in the military and even overseas, we had burn blankets and they come in a canister and they had this mm -hmm. goo that was on them. You know, we, yeah. we thought that was real high speed at the time. We come to find out that's not. Um, if you are burned, do not put that extremity or whatever it is underneath cold water. It needs to be tepid water, which is room temperature, because if you think about how blood moves through the tissue, when you are hot, the, the vasculature opens up. When you're cold, it constricts and it goes down. If I have a burn, I have tissue damage. And if I put something cold on top of that, it causes the vasculature to shrink, meaning that on the outside edges, there's not proper blood flow and the zone of damaged flesh will continue to expand upon the original area and become larger. So use tepid water to stop the burning process to remove the heat. And then what we need to do is look at a dry, sterile bandage to go on burns, not a wet bandage to go on there. So dry, sterile burns on the management of that. And then looking at the concept that we need to be moving this casualty very rapidly to a place that we can get antibiotics in them, that we can get you know a, a massive amount of fluid resuscitation in them. If you're ever curious to look at what is called the Parkland formula or the consensus formula on how to manage burn patients, that is the, the scope that we use pre-hospital hospital, how much fluids will go into that patient. And it can be a massive amount of fluids going into them uh, to try to maintain renal function and to get rid of the imbalance of electrolytes that's going on in them. So I was going to say it's enormous. Massive, very massive. So, but, uh, but definitely keeping it clean, you know, keeping it dry and, and trying to manage from there with them. So. All right. So moving on to ecchymosis. So not to 
life-threatening. No. But uh, <laughs> just some. So, Gerald, so when I say achemosis, I mean bruise. So, bruising, you've you've received trauma to, you know, normally an extremity, uh, you know, depending on your method of injury. But you see that darkening of the skin, obviously, the... Um, what the sensitivity the discomfort on the area what's the underlying anatomy looking like there were some considerations when you're looking at that so anytime we have ecchymosis or we have bruising that just means that we have received some type of trauma generally it's blunt it can be penetrating depending on what's happening and the tissue has ruptured the cells have ruptured and the little capillaries have broken apart and so it allows the blood that's supposed to be contained in these vessels to just free flow in between these cells and that's what you're looking at. The bruise is the blood that has traveled into this space. Now, it's no longer a part of the vasculature. It's not being reabsorbed. So it's dark in nature, and it is in this area. Since you have cellular destruction, generally pain accompanies it. And then you'll notice after it goes on a couple of days into a week, it starts turning yellow and green, and then the cells repair themselves. And then eventually you have no problems, and there's, there's nothing to worry about there. Now, it can point a picture. So there being other things that are happening and even deeper injuries that are occurring, we start getting into things like hematomas. We start getting into things like contusions, which can cause a, a deeper a tissue damage. Now, on the base level, if you have bruising and you were talking about a muscular skeletal type of injury, very simple. You go back to the whole Rice's effect, right? The rest, the ice, the compression, the elevation, and the splinting on, on things like that. Um, we're doing multiple things. You rest it because any type of insult obviously needs rest to keep it from aggravating. You need ice because we are trying to cause, you know, vasoconstriction and we're trying to reduce the actual swelling to the area. We want compression because we can actually compress the tissue and cause swelling to push out of it and go back into the vasculature. And then the elevation obviously keeps a large blood flow from going into it and pooling. And then splinting, I highly recommend the art of splinting is very something that, you know, even I see it's not very well taught or whatever. And I teach all of my people that you need to splint anything that is red, swollen, deformed, or painful. Um, you do not know the underlying effect of the injury. And until proven otherwise with imagery and very intense exploration, we need to assume that it is broken or damaged. And to move it and to put pressure on it will continue to aggravate and cause further damage to that. So with that, you know, that's just simple bruising. Um, in the flesh, it is what it is. You've probably had some type of contact. However, if you want to look at more significant mechanisms of injury, then we can start looking into things like the head. If you see bruising around the eyes, that is something that is called our ra eyes. Yeah, our raccoon eyes, right? That can mean that we have some type of head injury that has caused bleeding inside of the head. It could be a, a you know a basilar skull fracture or a cribriform plate fracture, and that blood is now flowing in there. Now, generally, we're going to see much more aggressive signs, altered mental status, you know, reduced you know mental uh, state, all those different things or whatever. And then you can also see battle signs, which is going to be that bruising behind the ear as well, where blood can pull there. That could be in conjunction with your head injuries, which if you look at your March algorithm, the H is going to stand for hypothermia and head wounds, right? And how to manage that. Um, now, the other thing is when we look at the torso, especially in our abdomen and our belly, you know, a lot of, of ab abdominal injuries are not very sexy. We don't think much of them. We're like, yeah, 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 whatever. You'll be fine, whatever. But there's a lot of death that can occur from abdominal injuries. And if you look especially around the actual uh, belly button, the umbilicus, 
you can see bruising there. You know, we call something that's, that's, that's colon sign right there. Um, you know, that would tell us that there is something that's going on where you could be free bleeding in the belly and in the separation of tissues in the abdominal region. That's where it comes to the surface. And we can see that the most, right? And then you look on the flanks, you look at your gray Turner sign and that kind of stuff can, can signify that there's bleeding going on. So it may not just be soft tissue damage at the surface. It can may signify other more complicated things that are taking place. Um, but, you know, separating the bruising to the contusion and to the hematoma, you know, the contusion is going to be a large amount of swelling in those tissues that's damaged and it could involve bruising as well. You know, hematoma or excuse me, uh, contusions can happen all over the body. If you've ever hit, especially something hard surface like bone or something, you can see a big pocket of swelling as well, you know, that happens there. And then the other, your hematomas. A hematoma is a collection of, of pooling blood under the skin. It's much more aggressive than a bruise. You actually have blood that just will sit there and it almost looks like jelly if you were to cut it out and pull it out. And so obviously that can cause issues like infection, uh, muscle damage, tissue damage, all that other kind of stuff as well in those areas. But the biggest thing when you're dealing with bruising is try to determine if there's something that's more severe underlying the effect, how having a high index of suspicion, right? Looking at mechanism of injury, and determining and saying, hey, how bad was that hit? And do we think that something is much deeper that's going on that we need to try? If it's something that's superficial, go back to your rices, manage it with something as simple as, you know, anti-inflammatories, NSAIDs, you know, Motrin, all that good stuff, um, and continue to treat it like a, a, um, a, a sports injury almost, if you will, to, to manage it in the end. So, And would timetable have a factor to play? I'm sorry. Say it. You're looking at. Say that again. Sorry, <clears throat> sorry. So, would time would timetable time factor have something to play in when you're trying to discern whether you're looking at hematoma or a you know just a normal run of the mill ecchymosis? Yeah, I, I believe so. Um, and the reason being is because you know certain types of hematomas are going to be you know more significant, especially when we start looking at like head injuries and stuff like that, right? Now, I, I could strike my cheek or fall and have, you know, ecchymosis or bruising of the face or whatever. But when we look at the hematomas, we can actually have, especially in the head, deeper injuries. When you look at subarachnoid hemorrhages, right, and you look at subdural hemorrhages and all those things, you've got to think your brain has vasculature in it, has arteries and, and venules and veins and all that kind of stuff. And the blood that's in those veins is not supposed to just flow into the brain tissue. It's separated between, you know, the cerebral spinal fluid and the meninges and the actual pass of blood flow. So anytime that we see that occur and we cause that rupture, it will cause the damage of that brain tissue as well. Uh, so anytime we have an individual who has head injury, has bruising, they are altered. They don't know their time, person, place, event you know, they're lethargic or whatever, that should be a, a very much cause of concern for us on that. Now, when we're talking about just musculoskeletal damage of individuals between bruising and hematoma, unfortunately in the field, there's not going to be a lot that we're going to be able to do to treat versus di differentiate what's going on, you know, there. We need to make sure that hematoma has occurred, that we're not developing things like compartment syndrome and that we're not having compromise of the tissue around it. Because obviously at the deep end of the spectrum, we're looking at, you know, as simple as having pain and having a, a manageable effect. 
to looking at things like what is called rhabdomyolysis and having cellular breakdown of tissue. And that is going to kill the kidneys and, and kind of moving in that direction with it. So. And injuries typically kind of harder to discern between like hematoma and bruising, just because of how badly any wound to the head tends to bleed. So, yeah. Um, and that's the thing. And I, I really am big on this and I teach my people that, the art of the physical assessment, you know, um, you, you need to be touching these people. You need to be looking, listening, you know, trying to figure out and using diagnostics to confirm what you already know. Uh, and I see it a lot. I see it in pre-hospital, I see it in, in hospital, uh, you know, a, a medic or a doctor will look at someone and say, okay, well, let's see what the imagery says, you know, versus coming up with a differential diagnosis and trying to, to match that from there. Now with the head itself, if you're looking at the exterior of the head, the scalp, the face, all these regions, Yes, there is a lot of vasculature there. Um, you cut the scalp, you cut the face. Generally, you will see a lot of bleeding. However, that is mostly superficial unless you, you hit some of the arteries that run into the face and the head. But a lot of times, simple direct pressure will stop that bleeding of that zone because they are not massive you know, arteries that are there. Inside of the actual head, obviously, we go into the, the cranium and below we have to understand that, that our, our brain, our brain stem and our spinal cord are encased. They are very special. They are inside of this packaging that's called the meninges, and they are encased in a fluid that's called cerebrospinal fluid. And that fluid is not supposed to mix with anything else. Blood is not supposed to go into that space at all. It is, is kept sealed in, in like different chambers, if you will, as it happens. So anytime we have a, a deep head injury that will cause you know, any type of a cerebral arterial bleed, subarachnoid hemorrhage, you know, subdural hemorrhage, all that kind of stuff, the blood can cross over that blood-brain barrier. And if that occurs, that blood will be necrotic to brain tissue, meaning that it will kill brain tissue. And a lot of times those injuries are permanent. If you look at individuals who have strokes, you know, there's two different types of strokes. Mostly it is going to be something that is, that is a block or an infarction, and it's going to be a hemorrhage. And if you look at those two different types of strokes, the hemorrhage is the one that is most lethal to those patients because blood goes into the area. It creates something called a penumbra. They have to actually cut that necrotic tissue out to try to save it. And once the damage is done, the damage is done to that individual. So I, I highly recommend in the physical assessment of these patients, especially when imagery is not available and you're trying to manage them. Anytime we have a head injury, we need to look at the light end of the spectrum, which is going to be an individual who has altered mental status, right? They're not themselves, they're lethargic, all these things that are occurring up into the point where we start looking at much more severe symptoms that will occur. You know, a lot of times if we have what is called intracranial pressure, which we understand the head itself is encased and it has its own pressure there. If that pressure spikes and our cerebral perfusion pressure changes, the body will change, right? Because all the decision-making is coming from this zone. And if we're putting that pressure in there, then we can start developing that increased intracranial pressure where the patient will begin to vomit. They will begin to throw up projectile. We can look at the eyes and we can see two different pupil sizes because the pressure is pushing on retinal nerves to cause that to occur. Even to the point where it progresses to think about it, you're inside of the skull. There's only, there's only so much room. If it's swelling, what happens to the brain and the brainstem? There, there's nowhere for it to go except for an outlet. 
in the bottom of your skull, in that ferrum magnum, you have a hole. And that hole is where that brain stem passes and becomes the spinal cord. And if that brain is swelling, it will start pushing that larger brain stem through that hole in something that's called herniation. And in that place of that brain stem is where our primal things are. You, everything that controls breathing, getting up into our, you know, our pituitary uh, glands, getting up into, you know, all the, 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 all those areas that will control the body functions. And then a lot of times what we see are individuals, especially if you see this, like what is, if you want to look up what is called Cushing symptoms, where an individual would develop irregular respirations, they will developing a widening pulse pressure and they will become bradycardic means their heart rate will slow down. And a lot of times with these patients, if we see them in the field, with a head injury or neurological damage, and we start seeing those symptoms, this is probably a pre-terminal event for them. That means they're probably about to die, especially in the accompaniment of what is called posturing. And in posturing, we'll see an individual either develop decorticate or decerebrate posturing, where their, their hands and their legs will either turn towards the body, decorticate, or turn away from the body and decerebrate. And generally, that is a yeah. pre-terminal event for them at that time. Um, they're, they're going to die very quickly after that because that brain stem is, is literally going through that smaller area and being pressed. There's nowhere else for it to go. Um, so that, that's and a very... Like you said, it's a very primal thing. So it's that's very right. last... That's right. You know, last course. I've only seen right. once clinically and it's... Yeah. Yep. Not and generally, generally they, they but, don't they don't make it to the hospital. If we see them in the field, we're probably going to have a traumatic arrest before we even get to a facility, uh, just because that's going to be a, a very bad outcome, you know, completely. So, yeah. But you know, once again, thinking of the anatomy and physiology, right? So, thinking of head injuries, thinking of the brain, right? So, your vision, your speech, your motor function, like you mentioned, vomiting. Uh, you know, looking at like Perla, you know, I mean, you know, like you said, you know, make sure that the, uh, that the pupils are equal, that your eyes track, you know, you don't have the, I'm a bad nurse, I don't remember the terminology, but you don't have the shake when you're going to your, you know, laterals. And yeah. Like everything. you're, you're but, a taxi and all that kind of stuff. Thank in you. In the stagnus. Yeah. <clears throat> yeah. But yeah. So once again, very important to know your anatomy and, you know, what to, what to look for there. And I, I highly recommend, man, you know, um, even if you're not interested in medical, go buy an anatomy book. Because if you're a gunfighter, if you think you're going to kill somebody without knowing what's in their body, you're wrong. You need to know what to hit. You need to know what to smoke. Uh, and if, if that, you know, if that means studying it for that reason alone, that will show you all the things that, that you need to, you know, encompass. Um, and to me, hurting someone and harming someone is just two sides of the coin. Knowing one makes yeah. you better at the other. If that, in some weird way, that if that makes sense to you, um, it definitely helps me to separate them out and, and understand the difference between the two. So, hundred percent. It's actually a project that we're currently working on, is making uh, a set of targets that are uh, that are stackable that you can place on a standard USPSA target. Nice. So that people can be learning this underlying anatomy. That's great. As they're, as they're training other things. That's great. Yeah. One, one of the mottos with Celis is hunt, harm, heal. Um, awesome. You, you have to be equal in all these things, you know, to, 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 to succeed, uh, you know, in the end. So. 
Hey everybody, this is Six and Seven with the Hard Time Strongman Podcast, and we are coming to talk to you about our Patreon and Discord. Hey guys, our patrons get early access to all of our episodes. They get all of our exclusive pre and post shows, all of our spicy takes, all of our rabbit holes that we go on, everything that we want to include in the episode, but we can't because we need to stay on topic. And soon enough, we will be offering digital downloads, guides, everything that we've been working on in the background will soon be available to our patrons. So make sure to check it out. And come hang out with us on Discord. Speaking of the spicy stuff, this is where we discuss most of it. Once you're there, you will get access to all of our in-depth discussions, including stuff like homesteading, fieldcraft, medical, camping, communications, shooting. You like ARs? Come talk to us about it. You like 4x4 vehicles and prepping? Come talk to us about it. You like Tannerite, Thermite, Napalm? Come talk to us about all of the campfire talks that would get us kicked off of other platforms. It's right there in our Discord. Come join our community. We're active on Discord every day. We're interacting with members constantly. We have guys from every walks of life coming to contribute their expertise to all of these various fields and subjects that we've been talking about. Come join the watch Discord. Come join the Discord. Join our community. Build up that better class of man. Now back to the episode. Sorry, I really like that one. I wanted to write that down. It's uh, <laughs> all good, so, man. <laughs> so, uh, musculoskeletal, so fractures and dislocations. Yep. So you mentioned fracture, you mentioned splinting, uh, but, you know, we have compound fractures, we have internal fractures. What, what do people mean to be looking at here? Because I've, you know, we come from, all, a lot of our listeners have a lot of different contexts, right? So you have your family men with, you know, rough and tumble boys. You have, you know, 20-somethings who are out, you know, who knows what the hell they're doing. You have, you know, fighters who, you know, going to be seeing more of this stuff, but, What's your, what's your word on that? So when we talk about fractures, you know, we, we have to understand which, again, which part of the body has received the damage. You know, um, if right. we're talking about just an isolated arm fracture, that's one thing. That's soft tissue damage, whatever. But if we have a fracture of the skull, right, then we're looking at a multi-system approach to what's going on uh, there. Now, when it comes to simple things like, you know, say, for instance, extremities and long bone fractures and all that stuff, those are more simple to manage for us. Um, you know, we have some type of, of mechanism that comes into contact with that extremity. The bone cannot move faster than the physics are involved, and we will imply damage to that. One of the things that a lot of individuals need to understand is that bone is not just static dead tissue. Bone is living bone it will grow bone will multiply bone will actually use its own vasculature there there are veins and arterioles that go throughout the bones right um that's how we we pump things we process things we do it you know you have uh red marrow and white marrow and all these things in and yellow marrow even in inside of these cavities and that some bones whenever they break will actually have a large amount of bleeding in the cavity from from that bone fracturing um so the thing is, is that to understand short-term effects, long-term effects, short-term effects are going to be, say, for instance, that mid-femur fracture, that pelvic fracture. You can lose a lot of blood through these fractures, you know, from a liter to a liter and a half in this area. Obviously, that may transmit to a person presenting as a shocky type patient. That's a lot of blood loss for them. 
Um, so with that, we'll have a lot of muscular uh, musculoskeletal damage in the area and then how to fix that long term. But when, you know, we can even get to the point where we start moving away from that and we start talking about just regular bone fractures and how they work is that we think of, you know, the, the actual nerve damage, you know, the loss of circulation to the end of the extremity and how that works. There's something that's called PNS that we use, and that's pulse motor sensation. So anytime we have an individual that has, we feel like a damage or something that's going on, you know, we need to go to the extremities and we need to go to the, the arms and we go down to the wrists. We need to take that radial pulse. We need to say, you know, look at the fingers and say, hey, you know, can you feel this? Do you have sensation? Is there any numbness going on or whatever? Down to the feet, the pedal pulse, you know, the toes or whatever. Because if we have a loss of PMS, that means that that fracture, which, you know, we talk about those pipes from Lowe's that are inside of that wall, if that, that main joist or that beam has shifted and pressed upon some of these areas, it may stop the sensation or the blood from flowing past it, and it can cause permanent damage to the rest of the extremity. Um, so, you know, I highly recommend that we, we learn the art of splinting. And, you know, if, if something called a SAM splint is not part of your gear, I'd highly recommend making it. You know, it rolls up. It's got a semi-rigid core to it. You can do all different types of things with it. Um, they're magic. Yeah, they're great. Yeah. You know, my number one use of a SAM splint is, is insane, but it's actually to open an airway. I place it beyond the, um, behind the occiput, put someone in a sniffing position or, um, or a tripod or excuse me, a sniffing position and open an airway and, and use it for advanced or basic airway management with them. You can use it as a C collar. You can take it around behind then cross over to the top and stabilize a cervical uh, injury in the field if you need it to. There's so many uses that come with them. But well, they packed down super small too. Very small, very lightweight. Very small, very lightweight. So they're great. But yeah, anything that you have, like I said, this red, swollen, deformed, or painful, I highly recommend splinting that uh, that area. And you need to check that PMS before and after splinting to make sure you have not splint it in a uh, a manner that will cause loss of circulation or or function to that limb that occurs. Um, and there's different types of fractures. Obviously, we have you know, fractures that are still in place, so to speak, in layman's terms, that is just broken and it stays right there. And then we have fractures that break and they shift dramatically, even puncture through the skin. And that's where we get into our old compound fractures or our open fractures, which leads to a lot more muscular damage, opening for infection, all these different things or, or you know, whatever. Trying to, um, you know, trying to fix that fracture in the field is very difficult you know, trying to reduce it or putting it back into place without imagery is very difficult because we don't know what lines up where. We don't know tendon, ligament, vascular damage that's been done. Um, that can be hard for us. And the same thing that happens for dislocations. You know, anytime we look at a joint injury um, that's occurred, you know, our knees, our shoulders, our elbows, all these locations there, the same thing happens with them. That is just a joint where two bones have come together, have shifted you know, because of impact or, or mechanism there. Same thing with them. They can be very simple. I often see, you know, uh, dislocations or subluxations that are very simple in nature. They do not have ligament damage, tendon damage. There's no problem with them, but they need imagery to confirm that a lot of times. And then a doctor will sedate them and just, you know, reduce that, put certain amount of tension in certain areas to pull and right back together where it was. Um, and those are things you can learn to do in the field. However, there is a risk with that. 
without knowing exactly what's going on under the surface, you can cause more permanent damage by attempting to do that, you know, but it, it's not a bad idea to learn the basics of how to do that. Because if you are in an in extremist situation where you have no choice, you know, what are you going to do? Have a teammate that just has a dislocated shoulder forever. You know, right. that's a conversation you're generally going to have to have and say, I can do more damage. I can help it. What do you want to do? We can actually reduce it now and, and have the, you know, have the chance to fix this and keep on moving. So. I actually had to do that with my boy. It's the weirdest thing ever. We were playing in our backyard and he was running around and he hit a pothole. They didn't see mm -hmm. his right leg went down a little bit, you know, farther than his left super hard. He just fell down and, you know, kids are, kids are super finicky. Sure. So like sometimes they won't even tell you they're in any pain, but he just, he got up, he tried to walk and he fell down again. And I'm from like across the yard looking like, Oh no. Yeah. <laughs> that's, that's not normal. He gets up again, tries to walk, he falls back down. It's like, Oh crap. So I went, man, he must've been two or three at the time, but I went, I grabbed him, I laid him down and I just, you know, put him through a normal, just range of motion. And I stood back up and he went off and, ran around sure it's like dude that's that's not fun stop it <laughs> uh, that is definitely right and, and even you know long-term management once we have uh, a patient especially our, our you know adolescent and adult patients that have a dislocation a lot of times tendons and ligaments will stretch meaning that they are more susceptible yeah. next time for that bone to misalign and to for it to occur mm -hmm. in there and a lot of us, especially, you know, any meal guys or any, any dudes who have spent a lot of stress, a lot of times, you know, you can feel if I sit here and, and make a range of motion, I feel that shoulder clunk back and forth. That clunking is coming from the ligaments and tendons that are now loose. You know, it's not held together. That rotator cuff is showing, Hey, there's, there's wear and tear there. Um, and we can look at the possibility that with the right impact, it will dislocate. So, um, it's always something yeah. to think about, you know? You'll be all right, six. Every, Take a breather, man. Everybody's getting super hypochondriac all of a sudden. They're like, uh, yeah, I guess it's hurting over here. I don't, not I even rotating down. And I can just feel the pain in it. I'm like, God. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I just remember every time I do a click. push of my hmm? shoulders click. Yep. It's like, dang it. <laughs> That's normal. It's just keeping count. That's all it is. So. Oh, yeah. <laughs> I love it. <laughs> oh, man. Oh. Uh, so same veins, sprains and strains. Yeah. So, so. Uh, the biggest thing to remember with them is if you look at sprain and you look at strain, basically your biggest difference is, is the P in, in sprain is for pain and then the T in strain is for tendon. Um, and, you know, a lot of times when we're, we're trying to realize a, a lot of the things, like, you know, some of our patients, I can't tell if, they have a, a dislocated ankle or broken ankle versus a strain or a sprain or what's going on there, you know? And so a lot of times with these patients that, you know, may have a sprain or something like that, they may have a longer recovery than an individual with, you know, a broken ankle just because of tendons healing and all that other kind of stuff. Most of your strains that being muscular in nature, you know, we can easily, that's a pulled muscle. We can use, uh, you know, anti-inflammatories. We can use ice and we use heat. The ice is going to reduce inflammation. The heat is going to encourage blood flow to incorporate healing that goes with that. When we get into a sprain, however, a lot of times tendon and ligament will be pulled, stretched, or damaged. 
and it will take much longer, even up to six to eight weeks for them to, to really get back to where they're supposed to be on that concept. So we, we have to be able to, to manage that, figure out what's going on with it and, and understand. And we want to be hardcore and we want to keep on going and we want to walk on it or whatever. It's not going to help. It's going to make it worse. Um, you, sometimes you just have to stay put and you have to let it heal and then kind of move forward, you know, with that. So I was going to say that's if you're patient, if your casualty is actually going along with your plan of care, that's right. You know, if they're actually, you know, following your care plan and, and, and that's doing everything you want them to do, which a lot of time they won't. <laughs> that's a great, honestly, and I can't believe we haven't talked about that yet, but that is something that I wanted to get to, you know, whatever your reason, whatever your mission is, whatever you're doing, whatever your buddies are, whatever, if you don't have somebody in your, you know, your circle that is medically trained, you need to go get somebody. Um, and I, yes. and, and not just, okay, I, I've got, you know, my guy over here, he, he took a CLS class back in the mid two thousands and, you know, he's pretty good at tourniquets or whatever. You, you need to get something more than that. Um, it's going to take more than that in the end. And you need to try to try to align yourself with individuals who have been medics, individuals with critical care experience, mid-levels, PAs, nurse practitioners, even doctors or whatever, um, because you're going to need that kind of stuff and you need to be able to recreate that um, long-term stuff. Not to mention yeah. the fact that, you know, I'm not saying that they do this and that they would do this, obviously, um, you know, but individuals with licensing, with their ability to access pharmacology um, and to be able to, you know, uh, possibly gather certain things ahead of time and to, to have that going on, you know, so. Well, or people who are close to a certain border or honestly, you can get a lot of equipment. Um, you know, obviously this isn't the gold standard, but um you know, folks who, you know, work in and with animals. Oh yeah, for sure. You know, a lot of, you know, a lot of, uh, air inventions, a lot of, you know, supply can be dual purpose. There. That's exactly right. But, and the FDA does not regulate a lot of stuff that is for animal use. Um, but it's made out of the same compound. It is made within the same tolerances of effectiveness. And it just says for animal use, not for human use on there. So, but you'll never know that if you don't have critical thinking skills, if you don't have the the thought process to actually go through and you know double check all you know all of those tolerances, all of those ingredients, everything else. If you don't have the inclination, you're not going to do it and you don't know. That's a, that's a resource that's completely lost to you. I, I agree hundred percent with that. Yeah, but uh to your point just a second ago, the more the more I learn in in medical care, the more I am aware of what I don't know. I <laughs> yes. picked up a book in this past year uh, where there is no doctor, and just thinking holistically, you know, if you do not have the infrastructure, if you do not have the support that we currently have now, it's it's so such a daunting <laughs> such a daunting task, you know. And then to think if you don't have someone who at least has a basic understanding of medical. I mean, what a monster to, to try to undertake with, with nothing. That's exactly right. And just like you said, um, you know, here, here a second ago, if you've never heard of where there is no doctor or where there is no dentist, that needs to be books that are going into your Amazon card or whatever right now. You, you need to have those. Um, Ditch Medicine, all these others, you know, e even the Ranger Medical Head book. Um, there, there's lots of things that, that, that need to go into, to that area. A lot of times, you know, locally you can find fire departments who are offering, 
emergency first responder or basic EMT or EMTB programs that you can go take. Sometimes they're even paid for. If you want to become a volunteer firefighter, yeah. I highly recommend doing that because just the education that goes and the understanding of a first responder world that, that happens there and just, just absorbing that Thank information. You. Yeah, getting that experience, you know, to, to do that. But you're absolutely right. You know, when you look at not having that infrastructure in place and how to replicate that and how to do it, obviously there comes a point in time where we want to have all of the knowledge and capability of modern medicine at our hands. You know, we want to have labs and we want to have testing. We want to have imagery and all that kind of stuff because that would let us know 100% what we're dealing with and this and that. But still, that's even practicing medicine. We see those people make mistakes all the time. But then the understanding is that we even move into, you know, different layers where we start saying, okay, well, here's the deal. I know that I need this, this, and this. However, I have done an incremental amount of studying about medicinal plants. And I know which works to do this, what works to help this. That's information that needs to supplement that at that point, you know, to, to learn how, how do we do this for the last how many thousands of years without med schools and all that kind of stuff involved in, in treating patients and, and doing it, you know, um, you go back and look at the Bubishi and you look at Chinese medicine from thousands of years ago and, and, and things that they were doing. It, it does create a well-rounded approach to, uh, to treatment and, and to care over time. So it, it definitely is not something that you're going to go take one class on and, you know, be Doogie Hauser or whatever. You definitely need a lot more exposure and experience with it to, to, to treat all right. kind of things. So. Well, something else I love, like you mentioned, is just that old school medicine. You know, you see all these old, you know, dudes, all these old farmhands, all these old farmers who, you know, they've been out in that field for 20, 30 years. And you know, they've gotten injuries. You think they've ever been to the hospital. My, my, nope. my grandpa, man, when I was a kid, um, he used to keep a, a, a glass jar. I think it was like a, an old Dr. Pepper bottle. It was real small oval shape, you know, it was the early nineties, late eighties. And, and, uh, that's how they came with a plastic top back then. And it was full of kerosene and had a rag in the top of it. And, you know, we were working out in the yard or whatever. And I cut my hand one day on a piece of tin and he's like, yeah, yep, come here. Took kerosene, put it in there. And I'm like, what is this? And he's like, it's going to kill the bacteria. So you don't get tetanus and lock off, off of it. Now, awesome. Did it work? I don't know. I'm still alive. You know, it could be chance or whatever, but you know, it's, there's, there's so many things that we've done for, doesn't mean it's right. It doesn't mean it's wrong. It, it, it you know, it takes some, some studying and, and seeing, but there's all different types of approaches to, to different things. And, you know, it, it's pretty wild. So. Speaking of wild, a lot of our listeners like to lick outlets or try to stick forks in electrical outlets. So we should probably talk about electric shock management of that. Yes, 100%. Um, so that comes with a whole other host of issues. It does. It does. Now, there's, there's two different things. There's, there is electrocution. Electrocution means to die by way of electric current, right? So when you say someone has been electrocuted, that means they actually die. Um, you know, if they are still alive, that means they've been shocked is how that works. Now, what we need to understand is that electricity is very hard to predict in the path that it moves. Okay. There's no guarantee that it's going to go from point A to point B. Like if you see an exposed wire, you may see an arc, right? It goes to the open air between point A and point B. You said, damn, I didn't know it would do that. I thought it was just going to go across the wire. 
So there's a whole lot of electrical principles and physical scientific principles that go with that, you know, ohms, resistance, conductance, all that good stuff. However, what we do know is that when a human body comes into contact with voltage, that voltage can conduct through that body. It now becomes the conduit. The problem is, is that electricity is not very kind to tissue. So we are obviously understanding that we are worried about, you know, getting electrocuted and going into cardiac arrest because it affects the, the cardiac tissue and the electrical, you know, properties of the actual cardiac tissue, like individuals that get struck by lightning and, and all that kind of stuff. But the problem is, is that you can be shocked and still have massive damage to the body. And the reason being is if you think about that arc and you think about the electricity going from point A to point B, well, if I touch something, you know, or if I touch, say, for instance, one hand or whatever, electricity enters my body, it may want to exit my body at some point, right, or ground itself against something. That means that that electricity, as it travels through the meat, can actually create a wound channel through that area as a conduit. And if we think about what comes with electricity, a lot of times heat is the byproduct of that. So as it moves through that tissue, it can literally cook everything in that wound channel as it travels through. So the problem with electricity is that we don't know the extent of damage from the outside a lot of times. We may see a burn and an opening here, and then somewhere down here, a burn and an opening there. That electricity has traveled through that area. We do not know what is damaged because of them. A lot of times we treat these patients as burn patients. That's the secret. Because literally what has happened is they have been burned through the inside. So if we talk about our fluid resuscitation for our burn patients and whatever, if you go back and you look at the consensus formula, the ones that have been, you know, shocked with electricity are having the highest amount of fluid resuscitation that goes with them because we simply do not know what that wound channel looks like until we see further imagery and, and all that kind of stuff that comes with it. So um, if you're shocked, if you have that entrance area, you have that exit area, you need to start looking for secondary symptoms, right? Pain, swelling, you know, any type of other uh, organ compromise that's taking place at that point, and you're going to have to treat it from there. It's almost like being burned from the inside out is, is what you would be looking at. So, Definitely one of the scariest methods of injury, just because it's the unknown. Sure, 100%. wild so uh biting or bite injuries you know animal and human i think most everyone you know should know the bacteria present in the mouth right and so you have the obvious risk of infection you have the obvious you know puncture injury um but is there any specific uh management that you can think that would uh I guess tidbits on that management, managing bites that you can think of. Punctures are tough, you know, and, and the reason being is when we talk about a puncture, we have a, a generally a smaller cylindrical type of, of, you know, injury that goes deep into a tissue and then comes back out of a tissue. It's, it's different from a laceration because it is that, that deep channel. With that deep channel, a lot of times traps bacteria, fungal, viral, whatever it may be. Infection can ensue because... We don't get good circulation. It can't drain well. Because if you notice a lot of wounds, they like to drain. That's a natural healing aspect for things. But when it's deep tissue, it doesn't want to. 
Um, so for that, yes, we do have problems. Mouths are pretty disgusting, you know. Um, there is bacteria, viral, you know, fungal even. You don't know what you're getting into. Communicable diseases even with individuals whenever we get bit by humans. And then obviously animals, we don't know what they're the vector or the host of. They may have all kinds of stuff that that we can obviously get from being bit by them. So the biggest thing is going to be the point of contact care, washing out the wound, you know, warm soapy water if you can get it, wrapping it, then watching the healing aspect of it. A lot of times if we had our, our ways and our wishes, we would start prophylactic antibiotics on them. We would go ahead and get it into them, starting off just in case. But a lot of times we don't have the ability for that. So we're, we're kind of left in limbo. We have limited resources. You know, we only have so many antibiotics and I can't just give it to you if I don't see an infection or whatever, you know, versus a risk to reward. So my recommendation is judge the, the depth of it the best that you can, um, clean it the best you can, wrap it and treat it like other wounds as far as that's considered. But it, with any other wound, ex, expect infection at some point, you know. Um, this is why, you know, just as a whole, the healthier that you are, the better you are equipped to fighting off infection, okay? So, you know, if you have like a BMI of 46 and you don't do anything to maintain good health, more than likely you are going to succumb to infection. You know, there are going to be problems that, that happen there. You know, diabetes, other things. If you look at diabetes and you look at individuals that, that form from that, high blood sugar, high glucose levels cause a decrease in healing application, right? Infections are worse. Infections generally cause worse diabetic uh, issues, you know, that go hand in hand with each other. So trying to stay ahead of the curve with that kind of thing is going to be huge. I know it's difficult in austere environments because what we can get as far as nutrition, we need to start thinking about that. You know, I can't emphasize enough that health and care and medicine is much more than a tourniquet or a gauze. It starts with what am I putting in my body? What is my nutrition? What is my sleep cycle? What are all of my underlying issues that I can try to affect? Because, you know, there's 100%, like even right now, we're seeing a, a rise back in, in the spicy coof. You know, the COVID is coming back around in my area, you know, but a lot of people, we're not wearing masks, right? And that's a whole other conversation about masks and everything anyways and all that kind of stuff. And the fact of the matter is I trust my immune system. I've given it what it needs. I, I, I eat what I'm supposed to I exercise. I do the things I need to. And I come in contact with disease all the time. It doesn't make me any less careless or any more careful. I just trust at the end of the day, my immune system is going to do what it's supposed to do. Um, with anything we deal with as far as injuries and long-term medical applications, this is a problem because that's getting away from the trauma and getting away to the medical. You know, you're out in an austere environment for a long period of time. You don't have fresh foods. You don't have, you know, fruits and vegetables that you can only eat canned foods for so long because the, the, the vitamins, minerals, and everything's cooked out of them. You're going to need replenishment in those ways. You're, you're going to have to get fresh things. You look at the old, you know, sailors and scurvy and all that kind of stuff because they weren't carrying fruit. Then they had to look at lemon juice and orange juice and all that kind of stuff to, to maintain long-term health. Same principle applies to, to our situations with that. So, Your health also affects your baseline. 100%. So if you have a solid baseline, then if you have an underlying issue going on, it's a lot easier to to pinpoint and to diagnose than if you're just a freaking dumpster fire out the door. Yep, 100%. Because a lot of these patients who have very poor health, 
they don't just have one thing wrong. They have all things wrong. It's a needle in a stack of needles with them, you know, and uh, you're trying to fix one thing and then the other thing is running off the, the charts with them. And that's, that's a very common practice in, in, in the modern world with most of our patients. So. Well, not to mention pharmacology as well. Mm, but, you know, if you have a host of underlying issues, then you know what happens when you know your your pharmacology runs out. That's right. That's right. I you know I, I think about that often. I see patients who are on oxygen. I see patients who are on insulin. I see patients who you know have to have this, and I'm like, you know, if if the power shut off right now, how long do you have? Mm. How long do you have realistically? You know, um, before you see- have you ever read. One second out or one second after. I have. Sorry for no, no, no. Me. Yeah, of course. No, yeah, I have for sure. Absolutely. That terrified me. I, I was very bothered after finishing that book because it's just like, oh my goodness, I've never read a book that had to put in such perspective. Yes. Yeah. Very much so. Yeah. And that's what, and he was so diligent. It's like, oh yeah, everybody who was on heart medication and uh, liver medication died within the first yep. month. Real, essentially real world application is, um, you know, years ago, uh, when I was in the service, we were sent to Katrina whenever it happened. Mm -hmm. And you have these individuals who are for all intents and purposes, they're, they're marooned with no resupply on pharmacology, oxygen, all these different things and, and things that could be avoided. These individuals would die from. So to say that you, you don't have to believe in whatever, right? Cause it's such a broad spectrum of things. You don't have to believe in the end times or, you know, civil unrest or whatever, there, there are historical aspects that have happened of all of us. We're like, yeah, you, but you would be wrong. This, this has happened. This can happen. Um, and certain things like that show us, you know, hundred percent. And the things I'll be honest with you, even from being overseas, the things that I experienced in Katrina frightens me more than what I saw overseas, you know, just the response, just how society functions, how they fall apart. You know, it's like seeing Lord of the flies in yeah. real time. Um, and it, it's a very, very interesting thing that I think a lot of people have not unpacked historically to really dive into it. I would recommend if you want to know what, you know, day five without power looks like, go ahead and go look at that example right there. If you think you're going to be good to go and that your neighbors are going to be loving and, and support you and all that kind of stuff, go look at that situation right there. If you think that, that the guy that you've known for, several years and that you, you know, you drink beers with on a weekend, you grill with that you guys are good to go. And he has a hungry son and a daughter who he can't put food in their mouth. And if you think that he won't clap you at the, at the first chance to, to not watch his kids die, you're wrong. Um, so, you know, you need to start thinking about these things and you need to start studying human behavior and see how it plays out into these things. Um, because when people are, are pushed into a corner, they will do whatever they need to do and they will become that animal. And you need to know how to deal with that. And you need to know how to expect what's going to occur with that. Not to mention the fact that so many people think that the government's just going to help them and there's just going to be a stream of resources. I mean, all you have to do is point to Katrina to see how wildly mismanaged that was. Yeah. The, the, the government is really good at helping people. If what you mean is the complete opposite of that in every single occasion throughout history, you know, you look at Hurricane Sandy and, and FEMA, you know, ran out of water within 36 hours. That's your only job. The only job is to provide these things and have it happen. You know, we, we saw it, you know, there in Katrina. And I, I don't blame them. We had cops. We had firefighters. We had EMTs. We had all these people 
who left to go home and take care of their family. I would have done the same exact thing. Burn the city. I'll take care of my tribe. I don't yep. care what happens at that point. However, what we realize is that the government response of the state, the federal, whatever, was not there. And what was there was absolutely days and weeks behind in mobilization. That's why the military had to be sent to intervene very rapidly in what was going on. We had no idea what was going on in these places. That's why the military was sent forward very rapidly to provide assessments, reconnaissance, intelligence on what was taking place in these areas, and then obviously to mobilize the logistics of response and rescue and all these these other applications there. So, um, yeah, you're absolutely right. And that's like I tell people in public safety. If you think that when you ring the phone for 911, and that somebody is coming to you and they're, they're going to be the you know, consummate professional to save you or your family, you are wrong. Um, my motto at the end of the day is no one is coming to save you. It's up to you. You have to prepare to self-rescue uh, at any, any, any joint, any point in time, any venture. You, you, you've got to take care of you in your own. So, 100%. I mean, even something as small as uh, 2021 in Texas. Yep. You know, we were caught without power for four days. And, you know, there was no help to be seen. I mean, you're talking about ice sheet over ice sheet over like three layers of ice on all the roads. And you can't blame Texas. It's, it hasn't happened in a hundred years. That's right. You know, why, why in the world would they keep that kind of infrastructure to be able to handle that? That's right. But you, you can't look outwards. You need to, you know, you need to be handling this on your own. Like you said. You know, what was it? 30 seconds out there, motto, you know, no one's coming. It's up to us. Like you said, prepare to self rest. That's right. You know, if you can't manage it yourself, you know, between you and yours, then you're, you know, you need to fix that. That's exactly right. So my last two points I had here. So we had amputation and uh, foreign body mm. injuries. Yeah. So amputation, that's, a, you know, a lot to do with massive hemorrhaging. So, you know, obviously the tourniquet, obviously the conversion of the tourniquet, what, worry about infection, worried about management. But obviously, you you know, if you are on your own, you do not have the resources. You don't have that, uh, the gold standard that you'd be, you know, hoping and praying for. But what would what were your two cents on that? So amputations are extremely difficult to manage. Um, you're right. You know, immediate threat. We're going to talk about hemorrhage control and stopping that. But long term care, you're talking about a nightmare. Um, a lot of times with with controlled amputations, you know, we want to be able to to cut into and shorten the bone, and then create skin flaps that are longer so that we can then encase the edge of it and then close it up around it. We, we don't want exposed bone because bone is live, like I talked about earlier. And if it's exposed to the air around it, it will become necrotic and die. And when we see just a repetitive amount of death of tissue necrosis and then continue to amputate up and up and up and up until it's just systemic and we die. So if you're dealing with an amputation, that's going to be a very, very, very hard wound to manage, you know, over time without, really big support. I'm not saying it's impossible because we've done it in the past. You know, you look at the civil war and and amputation seemed to be like the first line of defense on everything, but you know, it's, it's who makes it and who's dies according to what their health is and what the circumstances are and back and forth. It's anybody's bet at that point in time on, on who's going to make it, you know, with that. Um, And then obviously what we're talking about, you know, with our last one, um, 
is that, you know, we have to be able to, to understand and when we have any type of foreign body in, in, in us, you know, whether that is an object or whether it is an animal parasite or whatever, we have to think about number one, how do we safely remove it? Um, if you have a larger foreign body that is inside of us, you know, like a penetration or whatever, you're rolling the dice. The only time that we teach, especially in pre-hospital medicine, that if you remove a penetrating object is if it gets in the way of CPR or it gets in the way of airway, you know, that's when you can remove it because it's an extremist at that point in time. Um, and it's probably not a good chance at that point to save the person. Um, but you know, without imagery, without seeing what it's, it's stuck into and what's damaged underneath, we run the risk. It can be applying occlusion to an artery. And when we pull that out, you will bl massively bleed, you know, from there um, up until even the small stuff, you know, a splinter, uh, you know, a thorn or whatever causing infection, deep puncture wounds and all that kind of stuff that comes with it. Um, I do know that if, you know, like say for instance, uh, simple things like hydrogen peroxide, right? If you have hydrogen peroxide in your medical gear, I highly recommend you discard that. That's, that's not going to help you. Hydrogen peroxide will kill viable tissue just as equally as it kills bacteria in the tissue. So it, it will not cause a, a great healing process to occur there. Um, we need more selective things like antibiotics, you know, all that kind of stuff to, to, to fix what's going on in that tissue. So a lot of times just pulling it, using antibiotic cream, you know, if we have Neosporin or we have anything like that, that will help out with these things. Um, allowing things to drain, you know, say for instance, you, you can, you can buy suture kits. I don't know if you guys or anyone listening knows that you can go on Amazon right now and buy a suture kit comes with a practice pad, comes with the sutures and all that other kind of stuff. Um, and you could practice it and you could actually do it and become good at it. The problem is, is learning how that works in the full scale of healing. You know, some wounds are so deep that we have to go to the bottom of the wound and suture and then come to the top of the wound and then suture and create a channel. And then obviously understanding the need for maybe wanting a drain in there, like a rosette to allow that fluid that builds to come out and not, not create a pocket and create uh, infection there is going to be big. So, you know, also understanding too, six hours is a pretty good mark for a lot of these wounds as well. If you do not close a wound, Within six hours, something called, you know, cell granulation or degranulation is going to occur where the actual cells themselves will change their spectrum and their design, and they will start wanting to turn into scar tissue. So if you then go after six hours and try to close that wound up, it's scar tissue on scar tissue. It will not heal anymore, and it will then cause infection and just a festering wound after that. A lot of times if it's post six hours, you have to come in and cut that outer layer of flesh off, debride it, and then reattach it to, to get it to do what it's supposed to do. So little things like that that you need to kind of keep your, your mind on when you're, when you're treating things long-term is, is, is pretty key on that. So good set of tweezers. Any part of med, mm. med kit, you know, um, you can buy hemostats for sure. Yeah. Hemostats. He needs, and I, I've got a little surgical kit, you know, that, that you can use. You can find an army surplus or whatever with a, a tin blade, with a hemostat, with these different things. And, and you can do a lot with a kit like that, um, over time, you know, so. Yeah. That and stereo strips, stereo strips I've seen used to a pretty good effect as well. For sure. Definitely. And if, if you got friends that work in an ER, go talk to them. You know, it's insane to think that a lot of nurses and a lot of people that work in the ER, 
a lot of medications, a lot of tools, a lot of stuff, you know, they bill. They don't care if it gets used or not. They're billing the patient. It may still be in the package. And they're like, yeah, we're just tossing this in the trash. Well, Lance, brother, you know, we're, we're approaching two hours now. Obviously, we had a lot of fun here. We'd love to have you back on. Sure. But to kind of close out, you talked about, so a few references. You referenced books called Ditch Medicine. That's it. Where There Is No Doctor, Where There Is No Dentist, and the Ranger Medic Handbook. Are there any other references you can think of for our listeners to for their own, you know, their own further learning where they can kind of pick up and start learning this stuff? Well, to be honest with you, you know, I, I could say, well, go online and, and Google this or Google that. The problem is it's like sipping out of a fire hose. There's just so much mm-hmm. stuff. What I recommend doing it, you can go on, you know, thriftbooks.com or any of these Amazon or whatever. Go buy you like an EMT textbook. You know, a lot of times you can buy them used, they're not that much, and you can get it, and you can start just reading a little bit of a time or skimming some and start picking up information through them on basic care, basic anatomy, physiology, it, just anatomy books, textbooks, and all that kind of stuff, you know, is, is pretty pretty key on that. And, and that would be my biggest recommendations of where to start, you know, at least on on kind of how to get a a working knowledge of what to do and how to do it, you know. Um, and, and kind of going from there, finding, you know, going out and actually seeking training, you know, getting, getting involved with that kind of stuff. Even if it's basic stuff, go take a CPR course, go take a basic life support, first aid, you know, uh, family first aid, whatever that'll start getting you ahead, miles ahead on what's going on, you know, to, to be able to get out and do stuff. And I know that's, that's not sexy. I get it. hundred percent agree. You know, it's, it's not the deep end. It's not what you want to get involved with maybe, but Again, when you become a master at that and you can start teaching people on that kind of stuff, let's talk about the other stuff and and kind of how you can expand upon that. Because all it's doing is just building that reference, you know, all the way across. The better you are at those basic things, generally the much better you are at the the other things. I'm one of those people I don't believe in a basic approach and an advanced approach. I believe in basic, uh, you know, building basic fundamentals. And then I believe at fundamentals at 200 miles an hour. And at the advanced application, everything I've seen in my experience is that it's just the basic stuff in the most impossible circumstances. And if you can do it, you know, and, and maintain the simple things you've learned, generally you will have a much better chance of staying alive. Listen, so you've said this many times. Some some of this stuff's not sexy, but I know of one thing that's even less sexy than going to do in these classes: dying. Dying. Hundred percent. Hundred percent. Not many times you find a sexy corpse, <laughs> you know. And then if you do, then you have other issues that are going on. Yeah, so, I was gonna say that's a that's might need to see a psychiatrist. Yep. Yeah, so exactly. But our our hope is to make it more attractive. Our hope is to make you know this the the baseline. You know, that's our whole that's the whole point of this show. This whole point of our project is to to train the very class of man to raise the standard for you know in all these aspects to. You know, a uh, uh, rising tide raises all boats, right? So if we can raise the bar just a little bit, then, you know, that's exponential growth, not just for us, but for our children. I love you know, it. It's huge. It's a legacy. I love it. And I would tell you, you know, if you're you're listening out here, man, woman, whoever, you, you, are, you are intentionally made to feel like you are mm-hmm. by yourself right now. You are. Everything that you come in contact mm-hmm. with, media society, you, you feel like you are the oddball that you are, you know, you're not, I promise you, I guarantee you that you're not. 
uh, reach out, you know, anytime that you can. I'm one of those people I try to be available. Um, you know, uh, Instagram, shameless plug, go to Celis Dynamics, look me up. Uh, Google Celis Dynamics, go to the website, email me, you know, DM me. I try to respond to all DMs. If you just want to talk about things, you want to find out, hey, where can I get this? Where can I get that? I have people all the time say, hey, what was that book you were talking about? What is this? You know, whatever. And, you know, come train. You want to take a class with us? That's great. You want to take a class with somebody else? I highly recommend it. I recommend going to take classes with everybody you can get in contact with. If you say, hey, I can't travel to the Southeast or whatever, but I I would like to, you know, have this, contact me. If I can come to you and bring it to you, I would love to do that. You know, whatever helps build these relationships and, and, and these, you know, these ties that bind would, would be what we need. You know, we need a thousand different brush fires out there all over the place, doing their thing, being self-sufficient and able to survive with, with little or no outside influence, because that, in my opinion, is the only way to really gain force multipliers in the situation that we're dealing with right now. So, yeah. Awesome. Well, Lance, thanks again for coming on the show, man. Guys, this was Lance from Celis Dynamics, helping us to train a better class of man. This has been another uh, Mad Crash course. As always, stay in the fight. Hey, guys. This is 6 and 7 with the Hard Time Strongman podcast. Wanted to take a second to do a mental health check-in and to tell you all about the 988 Crisis Lifeline. So, the 988 Lifeline is a national network of local crisis centers that provides free and confidential emotional support to people in suicidal crisis or emotional distress 24 hours a day, 7 days a week in the United States. You can reach the Lifeline at 988lifeline.org or you can call or text 988 to get help to get someone real on the phone. Every struggle is different. Every struggle is hard. But you are not alone in whatever you're going through. As someone who has used the 988 crisis line, I fully recommend that if you're feeling any of those feelings of depression, suicide, hopelessness, Get in touch with them immediately. They will help you. They will listen to you. Once again, guys, you can reach the Lifeline at 988lifeline.org or you can call or text them at 988. As always, guys, stay in the fight. Stay in the fight.